Coming up, conservative black radio host Larry Elder on Uncle Tom. You don't want to miss this. Welcome to another Real American Heroes special edition. I'm Oliver North, and our guest today is Larry Elder, best known for his nationally syndicated radio show, The Larry Elder Show, known to his listeners as the sage from South Central. He engages political and cultural leaders in meaningful debates over race, government, politics, personal responsibility, accountability, and education. In addition to his radio show, Larry's a best-selling author. He writes a nationally syndicated newspaper column, and most recently is the executive producer of a new movie. Fasten your seatbelts, folks. The title of the movie, from a black author, is Uncle Tom. It's a collection of intimate interviews with some of America's most provocative black conservative thinkers. You've done so much, and you're a law school graduate. And so I just wonder, do you have more fun practicing on TV or in a courtroom? Well, when I practice, I only practice for about three, three and a half years, uh, and then I never practice again. But when I did it, uh, I like to say that I was good at it. I was a trial lawyer, and I like to believe that I could have had a successful career, but I really wanted to go into commentary, uh, into writing. I really wanted to kind of influence the direction of the way things were going, because I felt the country uh, spends too much, taxes too much, racism, sexism are no longer major problems in America, yet the left continues to uh, propagate the, uh, the narrative that, that these things are. And I just felt I needed to do something about that. And I wanted to do something about that. And I like to think in my last 35 years, I, I, I moved the needle a little bit, maybe in the right direction. Well, look, there's no doubt about it. Is that why you made the film? It, it is. Actually, a young filmmaker, the director named Justin Malone, approached me about two and a half years, Colonel, and told me he had an idea to make a movie called Uncle Tom, which I thought was pretty interesting. He, he by the way, happens to be white. And he comes to my office, to my studio, and he, and he tapes me for about an hour, maybe. And a lot of people come to my studio with ideas for films, uh, and then you never see them again because they can't come up with the money. Right. So this guy calls back maybe another month. I had already forgotten about it, Colonel. And he comes over, shows me the footage. And it looked beautiful the way he shot it. It was in black and white, which I thought was kind of stylish. And he also had interviewed another guy named uh, Reverend Jesse Lee Peterson, a friend of mine. And I loved the way he interviewed him. And I said, Justin, how far are you along to getting this movie done? And essentially, he said, if it were a baseball game, he'd be, he'd be in the top, uh, in, uh, top half of the first inning. I said, how much money do you have? He said, none. He asked me how much it costs. I said, look, I've never asked people for money, but I know that I've got a reputation such that if I did, people would give me money for a project if they thought it was worth it. Let me, let me partner with you. Help me, let me help you write the movie and structure it. Let's get it done. It took us two and a half years, and now it's done. Uh, and we've interviewed people like Candace Owens, a young firebrand, uh, people like Bob Whitson, a longtime neighborhood activist, a conservative, uh, a pastor named Stephen Broden. Uh, we've interviewed um, Herman Cain, uh, the late Herman Cain. Uh, we've interviewed uh, a woman named Carol Swain, who is a law professor at Vanderbilt. All of them are conservatives, and all of us have been called a series of names that we can't even say oh. on, family, uh, yeah. on family viewing. Uh, but nobody's upset about it, not personally. We're upset that the debate that should be had in the black community about whether or not we should be supporting vouchers, about whether or not we should be far more adamant about policing the borders on the grounds that illegal aliens who are unskilled compete for jobs that would otherwise be held by unskilled black and brown workers in the inner city and puts downward pressure on their wages. Should we be having a conversation about whether we want to be in the party 
uh, of Roe v. Wade, uh, Planned Parenthood, when 25% of abortions in this country are performed on black females. And rather than have a healthy conversation, when the, the conservatives in the film raise these issues, we're called Uncle Toms, we're dismissed, we're not even part of the conversation. And again, it's not that our feelings are hurt, it's that the conversation is not advanced in a constructive way. Well, I guess part of the problem I see on that is that, that, that for example, these are people you and I both know well. You got people like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams, who are all but unknown to many African Americans. And quite frankly, I fault my colleagues, your colleagues in the media business, for not telling great stories about the kinds of things that you and they are doing. And I could, quite frankly, there's got to be a reason for that. I'm not too sure what it is, but I don't think it's a good thing for America. Well, uh, as, as far as the regular media are concerned, um, the arguably the most influential magazine for decades in the black community has been Ebony magazine. It comes out once a month. It's since been sold. It doesn't have the clout it once had, but for decades, it was the magazine. Every black household had it on the coffee table. And every year, Colonel, they had a, a feature called the 100 most influential black Americans. Right. And every year absent from that list were Clarence Thomas, never mind the man is a Supreme Court justice and by definition is influential, not in there. Absent Thomas Sowell, never mind the man has written something like 56, 57 books. And David Mamet, the playwright, right. called him America's greatest contemporary philosopher. Uh, and also absent is Walter Williams. Uh, Walter Williams has a syndicated column, maybe 130 newspapers. To my knowledge, he's the only black man ever to be the chair of an economics department of a non-historically black a college or university, and he's not in there either. So uh, arguably three of the most important thinkers in the black community, uh, Clarence Thomas, Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams, are not even included in arguably the most influential black periodical for black America. What well, does that say? It, well, it says that, that they, they believe these guys are, are advancing views that are antithetical to the black community, and therefore they're not even going to introduce them to the black community. It's, it's, it's hideous, well, just hideous. Well, that's got to be one of the reasons why there's been so little coverage in the, quote, mainstream media about this film. Absolutely. I have been interviewed by Swedish media, South Korean media. The BBC interviewed me. Um, Australian media interviewed me. I can't get arrested here uh, in America. The only major organ that's done anything has been the Chicago Tribune, and that was only because its political columnist, Jack Cass, wrote a column about why nobody is, uh, is paying attention to the movie. But outside of that, I've reached out to the New York Times, the LA Times. I'm born and raised here in Los Angeles. I'm doing my show from Los Angeles, Colonel. I've written five books. Two of them are New, York, are New York Times bestsellers. A couple of them made the LA Times bestseller list. None of my books has ever been reviewed by the LA Times. And I'm a kid from the hood. I'm a, I'm a great story. My dad was a janitor for crying out loud. I went to an Ivy League school. I went to four, four high schools here in, the, here in LA. I'm a, I'm a local success, nationally syndicated host, and I've never had any of my, my books reviewed by the Los Angeles Times. And I've not had a phone, single phone call about Uncle Tom. And about Uncle Tom, Colonel, forget about the message and all these conservatives, just as a matter of economics, I would have thought it would have been a story for Hollywood. Yeah. This movie was made on a shoestring budget. It's opening weekend, it doubled the reported opening weekend of Bowling for Columbine, Michael Moore's documentary, which had a lot of major publicity. And that documentary went on to become the fifth highest grossing documentary of all time. We just did all of this with social media, a little bit of, uh, of conservative radio advertising. That's it. Well, I hope this helps. Tell me, who do you want to come see this movie and why? I want liberals, independents, 
uh, Oliver North, people like you, you're not going to learn a whole lot you didn't know already. You already know the history of the Republican Party. You know the Republican Party was founded to stop the spread of slavery and eventually to end it. You know the Democratic Party was founded in part to preserve slavery. You know that Democrats opposed the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment. Democrats found Democrats founded the KKK as a percentage of the party. More Republicans voted for the Civil Rights Act of 64, 80% than Democrats did, 60%. And it's a big lie that all of a sudden in the mid-60s, after that law was passed, the racist uh, Democrats left the party and became racist Republicans. That's a lie. You look at all of the Democrats who voted against the Civil Rights Act in the Senate, how many of them switched and became Republicans? <laughs> One, Strom Thurmond. Right. In the House, how many switched? One. I can't even remember his name. Outside of that, they all remained Democrats, died Democrats. Republican became the, the South became more Republican for the same reason that most people become more Republican. The Democrats became more and more left, more and more uh, pro-union, more and more pro-abortion, more and more anti-religion, more and more anti-self-defense, and the South changed. Uh, it had nothing to do with race, but that's the line the Democrats have pushed. I even heard one of my high school teachers tell me that. It's a lie. So, the, so I, what I want is for independents, uh, Democrats who don't know the history of their own party, to watch this and just respect that other people have a different point of view. Is it okay for me to oppose your views? And if I oppose them in a sensible, uh, uh, well thought out way, can I at least be invited to have a conversation and not be dismissed as a sellout and an Uncle Tom and, and the C word, I'm, and it's not the usual C word, uh, Colonel, it's, it's a coon word that many blacks are now being called by other people. Um, who was it? Um, uh, uh, Snoop Dogg recently referred to Herman Cain as part of the quote, Coon gang, Herman Cain, part of the Coon gang. This is a man who had a undergraduate degree in math, a master's in computer science, ran credibly for president for a while. You might recall he was even the front runner right. and is dismissed as part of the Coon gang. Uh, I mean, this is a kind of lack of dialogue we're having in the inner city. And the number one problem in the inner city is not racism. The number one problem is the absence of fathers. 70% of black kids are now raised without fathers. And Obama said, forget about elder, Obama said a kid raised without a father is five times more likely to be poor and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, 20 times more likely to end up in jail. Now, the question is, why have we gone from having 25% of black kids born outside of wedlock in 1965 to 70% today? And all of the conservatives in the film believe it's the welfare state that's incentivized women to marry the government and incentivized men to abandon their financial and more responsibilities. And the argument is not even being heard. Right now, Uncle Tom is available on UncleTom.com. What are your plans for a wider distribution? Well, right now we have an exclusive distribution deal with my radio company called Salem Communications, but that ends at the end of this month. And now we're in negotiation with a major distributor to get it into places like uh, Amazon Prime, Roku, uh, lower the price and make it far more accessible. That's the next move. And we're hoping to get all of this done before the election because I'm arrogant enough to believe, Colonel, that this is going to move the needle. Well, I think it will. And, and the fact is you're a very articulate spokesman not just as a conservative, but as a God-fearing man who's got a proper perspective on our role in this country. And so let me, let me put this last question to you in, in a personal way. I got 18 grandkids. I want them, when they read about this extraordinary time in history, to know what happened. And so tell them what you want my 18 grandkids to know about what my dear friend Larry Elder did during this remarkable time. 
Colonel, I feel that my greatest achievement is my book that I wrote about my father. It's called Dear Father, Dear Son. Yep. Colonel, I hated my father growing up. I didn't like him. I thought he was mean. I thought he spanked me too hard too often. I, I didn't understand why he even had kids. And I always told myself I was going to lift weights and get strong enough and big enough to be able to kick his butt, honestly. Now, uh, unfortunately, my dad starts a little cafe when I'm 10 years old. I got to work for the SOB. I don't like working for him either. It's a little cafe. When he got mad at me, he would yell at me in front of other people, and it would be embarrassing. Yeah. Now, finally, I worked up enough courage. I told myself at the age of 15, the next time this guy yells at me, I'm going to walk out. I'd like to tell you, I said, the next time this guy talks, uh, talks to me this way, I'm going to say, see your pal, you and me. Let's sit here and talk about our relationship. But I was afraid of my father. I couldn't do that. So I walked out. My dad came home that day at evening and he was steamed, obviously. I left him with a full building full of customers, little diner, but it took three people to run it. And I walked out, meaning that they were shorthanded. My dad was furious. He said, why did you leave? And I said, dad, I got sick and tired of the way you spoke to me. My father paid me $10 a day. He balled up the $10 and threw it at me as I lay on my bed. He walked out of my bedroom and Colonel, my father and I did not have another conversation for 10 years. And when I say not have a conversation, I mean nothing. Not even, is it going to rain? Uh, how about those rams? Because I graduated from high school. I went to college in the East Coast, went to law school in the Midwest. And of course, I came home from time to time to visit my mother. And my dad is still there. But I would just make sure I never saw him. So we had no conversation for 10 years. Now I'm 25 years old. And I just graduated from law school. I just passed the Ohio bar. I'm working for a major law firm. I'm, I'm making the equivalent of 150K and I'm 25 years old and I should be living large and I can't sleep. And I know it has something to do with my dad. Not that I ever thought we'd be friends, but I called my secretary. I said, cancel all my appointments. I'm going back to LA. I was living in Ohio in those days and I'll be back in a couple of days. I walked into the cafe, didn't tell my dad I was coming because I didn't want my dad to prepare for this meeting. I figured I would talk to him for five or 10 minutes, tell him what an SOB I thought he was. He'd tell me that he thought I was an ungrateful son. Maybe then I'd be able to sleep. Colonel, my dad and I sat down for 10 hours, excuse me, eight hours. We sat there and I said to myself, when I first sat down with the man, I said, don't tee off on him, just tell him a few minutes of the things he's done to you, said to you, and then he'll respond and let's get out of here. So I sat down for almost 20 minutes. You see how I can go, Colonel. And I remembered every single whipping, every single spanking, every single slight, everything this SOB ever said to me. I talked for 20 minutes nonstop. And he just sat there on a stool right next to me and took it. Every now and then he'd get up and pour some more coffee. He didn't say a word, he just took it. And finally I was done. And my dad looked up to me and he said, is that it? You didn't speak to me for 10 years because of that? And I said, yeah. And my dad said, let me tell you about my father. And this is the first time I've ever heard this story. I knew my dad was an only child. I met his mom once. I knew he had no relatives, but beyond that, I didn't know anything about his life and I didn't care, I didn't like him. And he said, you know your last name, Elder? I said, yes. He said, that's not the name of my biological father. I'm 25 years old, first time hearing this. I said, what? And he said, Elder was the name of a man who lived for about four or five years in our house, our room. I said, well, who's your father? Never met him. His mother, he told me, was irresponsible, had a series of boyfriends. She never worked. Uh, they would skip the rent. Uh, my dad came home at the age of 13. He started quarreling with his mom's then boyfriend. She sides with the boyfriend, throws him out of the house, never to return. You're talking about a black boy, Jim Crow South, at the beginning of the Great Depression. 
Uh, and my dad walked down the road. He did anything he could. Ultimately, he became a Pullman porter on the trains, came out here to California. That's why I'm out here. And it was sunny. And my dad was amazed you could walk into a restaurant and be served. So he told himself, maybe someday I'll relocate to California. Pearl Harbor, you'll love this, Colonel. My dad joined the Marines. I said, why? He said, two reasons. And you know what those reasons are. They go where the action is. And the second one is, I love those uniforms. <laughs> my dad is stationed on the island of Guam. He is a staff sergeant. He's in charge of cooking. My dad can look at a cake and tell you what's in it. War is over. He goes back to Chattanooga where he met and married my mom. And he wanted to get him a job as a short order cook. He goes to restaurant, to restaurant, to restaurant. And he's told, we don't hire niggers. My dad goes to an unemployment office. The lady says, you went to the wrong door. He looks up. He sees colored only. Goes through that door to the very same lady who sent him out. My dad goes home to my mother and says, this is BS. I'm going to L.A. I'm going to get me a job with a cook and I'll send for you. Comes out here, he walks around for a day and a half. I'm sorry, you don't have any references. My dad said, references to be a short order cook? And my dad offered to work for free for a reference. They wouldn't do that. They treated him the same way in LA as in Chattanooga. They were just more polite about it. He goes to an unemployment office, this time just one door. He waits for a day and a half. Lady calls him up. I've got something finally. I, I don't think you're going to want it. My dad said, of course I'm going to want it. What is it? It's cleaning toilets for Nabisco brand bread. My dad did that for 10 years, took a second job cleaning toilets for another company called Barbara Ann Bread, cooked for a family on the weekends, and went to night school two or three nights a week to get his GED. That's why the man was grouchy all the time. 15 minutes of sleep here, half hour here, hour here, not, not month after month, not day after day, year after year. And during the eight hours of this conversation, my dad is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and Larry Colonel is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. We're talking for eight hours now. He tells me his whole life, and now I'm crying. And I said, Dad, will you please forgive me? And my father said, there's nothing to forgive. You were a kid you didn't know. Just follow the advice I've always given you and your brothers. Hard work wins. You get out of life what you put into it. Larry, you cannot control the outcome, but you are 100% in control of the effort. And before you moan about what somebody did to you, go to the nearest mirror, look at it and say to yourself, what could I have done to change the outcome? And finally, no matter how hard you work, how good you are, bad things will happen. How you deal with those bad things will tell your mother and me if we raised a man. That's in my book called Dear Father, Dear Son. That is my legacy. And I, again, I don't want to sound arrogant because I consider myself to be a writer more than I am anything else. That book to me is every bit uh, a piece of Americana as Huckleberry Finn. And I hope that people will read it someday and hope that it will have the success it should have because it never got the, the widespread uh, reception. Critically, you go on, uh, I am, go on Amazon, the reviews are spectacular, but it just was not marketed. I went to a small publishing company, my mistake, shouldn't have gone to a, should have gone to a bigger one. It never got the distribution that it should have gotten, but it is a wonderful piece of work. And you've got a great description of it. I Sounds a lot like the book of Proverbs to me, advice to a young man. If this Real American Heroes special has been informative or encouraging to you, take time to let me know how these unprecedented events have affected you and yours. By doing so, you could too become part of this historical record of how America persevered and once again prospered. Until next time, remember, Semper Fidelis is more than a slogan for U.S. Marines like Larry Elder's dad and me. Always faithful is a way of life.